become a better person and follow the process. Have some good habits, think optimistically, and you'll probably just attract sales to you. This is Sue Freck, and I'm your host of the Happy Marketer Connection podcast, brought to you by Vesta. Each week, along with my guests, other fellow passionate marketers, we will explore engaging and inventive marketing strategies and toast brands making impactful consumer connections. Please kick back, relax, and join our happy half hour of marketing inspiration and positivity, and come away a happier and smarter marketer. This week's theme is connection. As we sit back and reflect on 2020, I think we can all agree we've made some new connections in a digital form. LinkedIn and other digital tools like Zoom and WebEx have made it so easy to connect with people online. But how do we translate those connections into meaningful relationships, whether in business or in life? Michael is an expert on creating meaningful connections. This week's guest is Michael Neuendorf. He's become an expert in LinkedIn and will share tools and tricks for each of us to apply to our everyday. Your digital brand has become a critical part of how you make new connections, and today we're going to hear some best practices that I assure you you can implement right away. As we know, the digital relationship is only getting stronger, and now's a really good time to just take a step back and look at your LinkedIn, look at your digital brand, and see where you might be able to make some enhancements. So let's dive in. Thank you, and welcome back to another episode of Happy Marketer Connection. Today, I have with me Michael Neuendorf. Michael is an executive coach and trainer, and his business is Build and Balance. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thanks very much, Sue. Glad to be here with you today. So I am excited. I love when a podcast can be something that we all can learn from. I think that's many reasons, you know, it's maybe the main reason why people listen to podcasts. And I think you've just got some great reminders, advice, and some maybe new tips for people as it relates to our theme today, which is connection. So let's start with your background. You know, you have had, you had a very, very successful career with some of the largest companies. You were the marketing director at Oracle. Can you share a little bit about your background and how you ended up being um, and building your own business? Sure. I do have a pretty diverse background. When I graduated from school, I wanted to work in advertising. That was my degree. And so I moved out to San Francisco to get a copywriting job. But unfortunately, there weren't any. There were only jobs in media placement. And that was my least favorite subject in school. So I went into sales. And I went from sales into sales at high tech because I saw this movement, this high tech movement happening. And uh, I'm dating myself. I'm going back to the mid 90s, right? And I thought, I need to get into high tech. And so I got into a sales job in a company that services high tech companies. And that was SoftBank, which many people know now from Masayoshi Son, who runs the Vision Fund. You know, he's been in the news quite a bit. So I worked for the Son Empire for a little while. Then I parlayed that into a job at Oracle, where I stayed for 10 years. Uh, I had a great run there. I really enjoyed it. Loved the job, the people I worked with. But ultimately, I wanted to run my own business. I had my own business when I was 15 years old, Sue, and I just never, never lost that entrepreneurial bug to, to be your own boss. And so I was just waiting for the right time. Yeah, excellent. So was it an overnight um, plan? Was it something that you built up to? Did you already have clients? Sometimes, you know, there's that one client you test the water with. What was that start like? That's a good question. It, it was anything but overnight. Uh, once people get to know me, they realize that I'm a late bloomer. Uh, everything I do, I do slow. I, I eventually do get to everything that I plan. 
uh, when it's important to me, but I do it slow. I'm the turtle. <laughs> and so I've been thinking about going out on my own for almost six years before I did. I, I, I think it was around that time. And basically my wife said, would you stop talking about it and either do it or not? And, and that's why I did it that year because I couldn't talk about it anymore. So I guess I had to act on it. <laughs> I didn't have a client when I started out. You didn't? Okay. No, no. I totally went out on my own with nothing. With nothing. So part of your success in building your business is making these connections. Um, why do you think you're so good at it? You know, is that innate? Is it something that's learned? Is it out of need? Because, you know, you, now you've got a, your own business. You're carrying, you're carrying all of your, uh, your own weight. I think it partially dates back to being in sales because sales requires the ability to establish connection quickly with just about anyone. Uh, I told you I started my first business when I was 15 years old and that was selling bicycle parts to my friends, but I also had a job and that job was delivering newspapers. Back in the seventies, there were actually kids delivering newspapers on bicycles. I was one of them. I know it well. <laughs> oh, you too. Wow. That's yeah. neat. Yeah, and so I was delivering newspapers in Sierra Vista, Arizona, and I would have to collect the fees. I would have to go around and collect the fees for the paper. And occasionally they would take us to other cities like Tombstone, Arizona in a van, and then they would spread us out in a neighborhood to go get subscriptions for the local paper. And so I learned to establish connection with people at a young age. And when I went into my job at Oracle, one of my key positions was managing relationships. And I manage relationships with user groups. I manage relationships with key partners. And I learned the value of connecting with people and establishing a rapport and a long-term relationship. So it, it was from sales and the jobs that I've had. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. You know, I actually forgot about my paper route. It was one of those things that it was actually my brother's, but because he was older, he actually forced me to go do the collection. So he got to do the fun part, which was throwing the paper on, and then I'd go around and do all the collections. And of course, probably didn't even get paid for it now that I think about it. But I do remember those days, which certainly, certainly dates us. So speaking of dating us, we didn't grow up with LinkedIn. You know, we certainly, I didn't even have the internet when we were growing up. But how did you connect with people prior to LinkedIn? in a more scalable way? I actually worked in the trade show business, the conference and trade show business. That was my career, essentially. When I went to SoftBank, the job that I got in sales was selling passes to conferences, to educational conferences, and they were all tech conferences. And then I went into a marketing position at SoftBank, and then I went into a marketing position at Oracle in the support division. But one year later, I was reorganized into the corporate events team. And so I did a one-year departure from events, but I worked, worked with events uh, literally for about 12 years. Uh, and that's relationship at scale because when you do a trade show and conference, you're literally talking to hundreds of people over the course of several days. And one of my jobs at the show that I worked on for Oracle, is called Oracle Open World, is I manage the information booth. Uh, I was not the only person. I managed a team of temps who would, who would manage the information booths at various points in the show. And we would talk to hundreds of people a day. Uh, and so I, I am used to talking to a lot of people over a short period of time and uh, establishing connection at scale. But it's uh, certainly different than what we're able to achieve over a social platform. Yeah, for sure. And we've talked about this, you know, LinkedIn, when it first launched, um, was certainly a place that you went to either find a job or connect with a candidate. And now today, it is, it's so much more than that. Can you just talk about from your perspective, that transition? Sure. 
I had that same impression. I remember being on a trade show floor in Denver, Colorado, and talking to somebody about LinkedIn and saying how someone had invited me to connect with them. And I was commenting to my coworker, this is when I was at Oracle, why would I do this? Why, why am I accepting this connection? I'm happy with my job. I'm not looking for a job. But everything changed when I started out on my own in 2008. Then I was looking for ways to establish my visibility uh, online. Like I, I knew that I needed to have an online presence. And since I run a B2B business, LinkedIn felt like the most natural place to do that. And so I, I thought, how can I make something of this for people who are not seeking jobs. And that's when I started connecting with people and sharing educational content that would simply help people in their careers and businesses. Yeah, and so you must see or have seen trends over time. You know, what are some of the biggest trends that you're seeing or you know, with regards to the tools that are available on LinkedIn? It's interesting, Sue. I have seen many companies seek to compete with LinkedIn. Companies such as Spokio, Alignable, I think there was one called branched out or branch, something like that. And these companies come and go. They are unable to effectively compete against LinkedIn, whereas other platforms have been able to effectively compete against Facebook, right? We saw Instagram used to be a private company and then became a Facebook company. But now we have TikTok and we have YouTube and we have Pinterest, we have Twitter. And yet in the B2B space, no company has been able to beat LinkedIn. And I think it's because the management has been so exceptional at ensuring that it remains a professional platform as the one place, although there's a little bit of non-professional content that's starting to creep across of LinkedIn's landscape, it is still the professional place for career discourse. Uh, and I think that the trend that has taken hold over the last few years is it's now also the key platform for online learning. They purchased lynda.com several years back. They also purchased SlideShare. SlideShare is actually now sold to another company. But the reason that they purchased these assets is because they wanted to present lots and lots of educational content and be that place where not only people went to be social with each other and maintain connections, look for jobs, et cetera, but they wanted to learn and grow. And I think that's a trend that is really taking hold on LinkedIn because the hours spent on the platform continue to go up based on learning. And that's why I think, you know, because they as a company hold content at such a high standard that us as content producers essentially on LinkedIn have to think about that. Like we can't just publish garbage out there that's self-serving. Like you have to be able to publish content that's relevant, educational, that's of value. So that value exchange. So I can, and as business owners, and then as people that are purchasing services, you know, we both can appreciate better content. So I, I certainly would agree with you on that. So, you know, do you have any sort of tips when we think about someone's LinkedIn profile, because you've got um, a lot of experience with LinkedIn, you're certainly using it as your business. I connected with you because I listened to one of your webinars. What sort of tips do you have for someone when, you know, relating to their profile that they really should think about or be aware of, you know, because we, we pretty much all have profiles and maybe it's one of those things you throw it up there and you don't think about it, but as part of your personal brand, you should be thinking about it. I think you're 100% correct. 
one, one of the items that you noted that I want to touch on is the, the requirement to have high-grade content on LinkedIn. If you think about LinkedIn versus other social platforms, it really is the only one that has a blogging component. While you can publish long-form posts on Facebook, it's not the same. LinkedIn has the ability to publish long-form posts that are akin to blog posts that stay connected to your profile for the foreseeable future. And then you have the ability to also post posts that go into the newsfeed. And so you have that two-tiered ability to, to share good content. And I think that's a really big understanding for people to think about not just posting temporary content like with every other social platform, but also posting really good content as posts, those long-form articles. The other tips that I have to share are that uh, people are not making use of the background image behind their photo that that's real estate like a billboard. Imagine that you have thousands of people driving up the freeway past your billboard. And what are they seeing when they drive by that billboard? Are they seeing your advertisement here or are they seeing your advertisement? And I really think that people need to start thinking of that as a billboard and using it to get people intrigued to want to go down the profile and read the other sections of the profile. So there is this latest addition to the profile called the featured section. And I think the featured section is a blockbuster addition to the profile in that it allows you to share posts that have worked well for you in the past and present them on your profile as featured attractions, so to speak, like your greatest hits. And imagine if you had a special event coming up, like you had the 100th issue of your podcast coming up and it's going to be a really big one because you've got Seth Godin coming onto the podcast. Somehow you were able to attract Seth uh, and you're planning to release it on a certain date. You would use your billboard to tell people, hey, look down and in my featured section, you'll see the link to my interview with Seth Godin. And then people will think, oh, I'd like to hear that. And so they'll scroll down your profile, look in your featured section, and they can click on that post where you shared the link to that recording a week ago, 10 days ago. But in the newsfeed, that post is gone, right? It's gone in the newsfeed, but it remains on your profile. So I think that's really important for people to understand the connection between the background image and the featured section. And then the voice memo. We now have the ability to attach a 10-second voice memo to our profile, which is right up there in that upper section of our profile. And so you can have people clicking on this little sound file and understanding how to pronounce your last name. You, like me, Sue, have a last name that people sometimes mispronounce. Always. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So it's useful for that, but you can also use the next eight seconds to proclaim what you do and how you can serve people. So I feel like people are missing out on some of this, these latest additions to make their profile more attractive and sticky. Yeah. How do you stay up on the latest additions? Are you on LinkedIn's blog? Are you <laughs> getting an email from them? Yes, I am. So I do subscribe to updates from LinkedIn uh, through the newsfeed and also by email. I am a sales navigator user, which gets me on another level with LinkedIn. And I also subscribe to Social Media Examiner. Uh, that's an organization that is an excellent resource for all things social media. They have their own audio broadcast. I think it's a podcast that also is a YouTube video. Uh, they have regular blog posts going out and they have lots of content on LinkedIn as well as the other social channels. That's great. That's great. And those are super helpful. I think the voice memos, particularly um, hearing someone's voice 
and seeing their photo, reading their profile, these are the things that are going to make that connection and, and have a staying power. So when we think about outreach, my company, your company, yourself, the business development component, how do you compare like the email outreach with a LinkedIn outreach? I am seeing that few people are responding to email in that we're all inundated with email. And so it's difficult to break through with email. What I'm experimenting now with email, Sue, is actually video email, where I'm using a third-party app called BombBomb, and there are many out there, but I'm, I've used BombBomb for this experiment where when people uh, are reaching out to me, wondering about my services, I'm replying back with a video email. That is putting that personal connection onto an email. With LinkedIn, the personal connection is already built in because they can go to your profile and learn a whole lot about you, right? Uh, and that's just not possible with email for people to learn a whole lot about you without some sort of personal component. And so I think the video is, is taking that place. But I like to put my emphasis onto LinkedIn versus email because I feel like I can just reach people in a B2B context where they're thinking about work. Uh, whereas with email, they're, they're thinking about work, but they're not thinking about learning and growing, which is my business. Right. Yeah. They're doing their day-to-day -day job, but not necessarily working on their business. Interested in building a home for your audience? Our Vesta solution powers online communities, giving your consumers a home for a world of engagement and connections. To learn more, visit us at vesta-go.com. What happens when LinkedIn because now it's a special place um, with you can, you can write to your connections when it becomes too saturated or, or are we already there? I mean, I know I certainly get a ton of outreaches from a variety of different services and I, I can't get to all of them. So what happens when it becomes too saturated? What happens when it becomes too saturated? That is a, uh, it's an important question for everyone to consider because you've seen it happen on Facebook. Uh, I think you're seeing it happening on Twitter. Uh, YouTube has, something like a billion users, but then almost a billion hours of content uploaded regularly, right? I mean, there's, there's a, a YouTube channel for everybody. And so everything is becoming saturated. And, uh, and I'm sure that for some people, LinkedIn feels that way already. What is interesting is that some statistics suggest that very few people are actually posting on LinkedIn and fewer still are actually writing articles. Also, it's a small percentage of people who are posting videos on LinkedIn uh, and then even fewer doing live video on LinkedIn. So there are still these frontiers on LinkedIn that uh, present opportunity and possibility for people. And so I think that ultimately we're going to have to answer that question, but we're still a few years away from it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we still rely a little bit on the algorithm to put the, the best content forward in front of people. So if we've got content that's highly liked and engaging. Um, we also rely a little bit on the LinkedIn algorithm to make sure our prospects are seeing it. What's your strategy? Okay, so you probably have, I don't even know how many contacts. I don't even know how many contacts I have at LinkedIn, over a thousand, I'm sure. So how, what's your strategy for manning, managing your contacts, your leads, your prospects, utilizing LinkedIn? A couple of things. First, I like to share good posts uh, just a few times a week. Like I typically don't post more than twice in a week. And I try to keep things varied to the degree that people won't know what I'm going to post next because we don't want to fall into a rut where we're sharing article after article. I found this article and I think it's really great. 
oh, I really like this article. I think you're going to like this article. I, I think that that's being done ad nauseum on LinkedIn. And when you talk about saturation, that's what's at the saturation point is sharing articles on LinkedIn. Whereas sharing video that you've shot yourself, that's not nearly at saturation. Sharing articles that you've written, that's not nearly at saturation. So I like to share good posts. And then in terms of maintaining connection, I spend time every single day going into the newsfeed and scrolling through and seeing what catches my eye and trying to be engaging. For I'll give you an example that most people are not willing to make this kind of effort. So yesterday, one of my connections shared a photo of himself with Gary Player. Gary Player is a famous golfer from South Africa. And I've heard of him, but actually, Sue, I didn't even know he was from South Africa. I just knew he was a very celebrated professional golfer. So when I saw that post, I thought, I want to learn a little bit about Gary. So I went to Wikipedia and I looked at Gary's Wikipedia page and I saw that he was, he was given Sportsman of the Century in, uh, I think it was the year 2000 in South Africa. And he's also established a school nearly 40 years ago in Johannesburg to educate K through 12 children. And he's raised around like $60 million to educate kids at that school. And those kinds of things really intrigue me, right? Learning about these great achievements of people and the way they give back. And so then I thought, thoughtfully wrote back to my connection about what I'd learned about Gary. And what that says to my connection is, wow, he really read, read my post. And then my post led him to action, which I think that's what people want, is they want to know that what they posted touches you in some way and actually drove you to do something. Like someone else posted yesterday about their father was in the Navy. My father was in the Navy. I not only celebrated what she was doing, her company is doing things to help veterans, but I said, wow, my dad was in the Navy too. I didn't know that about you. That makes her like me just a little bit more. And I don't mean that in a self-serving way. It's genuine. It's coming from my heart. But I try to go a little above just pressing the like button. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the personalized response. So taking that extra step when you're commenting, it's not just a like or great article back. So it's exactly. actually developing that personal response. And I'm sure you do that in your outreach as well. You know, before you go and do a cold outreach to somebody, it's that personalization. I know for us and for me, that certainly helps um, when, when you've done your homework and you have a genuine interest in their education, their background or the content that they're sharing. So I love that, that reminder. Speaking of content, you know, it's certainly a line item on a CMO's BNL and yet business development, sales leaders, they really need to focus on content to grab the attention of their prospects. So what are sort of your thoughts on that? I have a really big thought on that. And then I have a really big challenge. So the really big thought on that is that I believe sales and marketing are more blended than ever before. As I mentioned to you, I have an advertising degree and I've been in both marketing roles and sales roles. And I've been in hybrid roles. At Oracle, I was in a marketing job, but I had to sell and I didn't get commission. It was just part of my marketing job. So I understand the blending of the two roles and today's BD reps have to understand the marketing concept of creating content. But here's the challenge, right? So, so I understand that that's important and I try to be as creative as I can in creating my content, whether it's written, video, audio, whatever it is. But today's BD reps are challenged. They're challenged for time. And the idea of having to create their own, own content is somewhat overwhelming to them. 
And so I find that when I train people in sales and encourage them to be their own little media company, they are stressed and overwhelmed by that. And so what I think is important is that they try to establish one area of expertise, just be an expert in one area of your field and share content related to that one area of expertise, read books, read articles, listen to podcasts, watch TED Talks, whatever you need to do, talk with the sales consultants and sales engineers at your company, learn a whole lot about one area and just share content around that one area so that at least you're known for something. Just be known for something and be a thought leader in one area and you'll find it easier that, for example, I've been studying public speaking for 20 years. I can talk about public speaking a lot because I've been studying it so long, right? And so the longer you study something, the, the, the easier you find it to share content and educate in an area. So at first it seems overwhelming, but it will become more and more, it just becomes easier, right, over time. Yeah, I certainly see that with our sales team. You know, they are marketers. And of course, marketing needs to have the sales mentality, both helping cut through noise as well as being compelling and certainly helping them close the deal. So I absolutely, absolutely agree with that. So let's talk about your coaching and training business. Can you just share a little bit more about it? Sure. So when I left the company and went into the field of professional development, it was the realization of a dream. In 1998, I went through a Dale Carnegie program, which essentially was a breakthrough for me because I had a fear of public speaking. I told you I've been studying it for 20 years. Well, that started in 1998, where I would sweat and shake and get nervous, and I couldn't, I couldn't even memorize a one-minute speech. After that, I caught the bug for it, and I went through Toastmasters for five years, and I just thought, I really like this. Maybe I could do this for a living one day, but I wasn't sure how, so I went ahead and kept on going with my corporate job. Well, in 2008, when I entered the world of professional development, I found out that there are many people who are hiring coaches and trainers, and maybe I could be one. I could just enter that field. Uh, now, since that time, it's been 12 years, and the uh, acceptance of coaches uh, for managers, leaders, small business owners continues to grow. That coaching used to be looked at as something that was given to people who were in trouble. You know, that it was almost like a punitive measure, and it was part of a, part of a PIP or a development plan for someone who was just not meeting the spec. But now it's actually a gift to up and coming managers, leaders, people who are already accomplishing great things, but they could do even better. So it's not that they're in trouble, but they might have some blind spots that are holding them back from being even better at what they do. So I feel like I'm in a good field because it's growing in acceptance, uh, being used in, in all companies, large and small. In terms of training, that was already a very uh, accepted medium when I went into it, but I found that based on my teaching background, and my love for service and my interest in connecting with people on a personal level that I could be a good trainer. And, uh, and I like to be what's called an enter trainer where I weave humor into my training and mm -hmm. personal connection so that, that you might feel like it's the same subject, but it's delivered differently by him. He's enter training. <laughs> I love that. And that's helped me to keep clients over the years. So, so I think that I add, I add a personal touch that is different, you know, separates me from other trainers. Yeah, and certainly, um, I'm sure there are teams and employees that they hear training and they go, wah, wah, wah. So if you can make it more engaging and interesting, fun, I am sure it has a much greater impact as well. So what's your specialty then? Obviously, you have a ton of experience across the board, but where, where can you be most helpful for your clients? 
I would say in a few areas. Uh, one is emotional intelligence, that I help people with communication and collaboration with their coworkers uh, or teams so that they can get more work done, innovate better, collaborate better, and be happier at work using emotional intelligence. Uh, the World Economic Forum has considered emotional intelligence to be one of the top 10 skills needed for success in this decade. And, uh, and I absolutely see it, Sue, especially in, in Silicon Valley and high tech. There are a lot of people who are brilliant at what they do, but they fall a little short on the EQ side. They're really high on IQ, but a little short on EQ. And so that's where I come in to help them to learn ways to communicate in a way that inspires and draws people to them as an inspirational leader, right? So that's one field. And then the other is sales, that I work with a lot of sales teams and individuals to improve the way they sell by uh, not just following process and doing the right things, but I combine mindset, process, and habits. That's what separates me from other sales trainers or sales coaches in that I cut across all three of those areas because I believe that when you have the right mindset and you follow the right, the right process and you build that on top of good habits, then you become an unstoppable success. That I heard this quote from Jim Rome many years ago that you don't chase success. Success is attracted to you by the person that you become. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that was so important for me to understand. And, and that's why investing in yourself is usually the greatest ROI. And so I try to help salespeople to understand that. Just become a better person and follow the process. Have some good habits. Think optimistically. And you'll probably just attract sales to you. Yeah. Do you use the same process um, and sort of format or platform for each team? Or do you sort of look at the team and pick out of your, your toolbox um, when working with them? The latter. I generally personalize my approach. I mean, that's the nice thing about being a small business, but I can be nimble and tailor my approach to every client, whether it's a solopreneur, an independent professional, a team within a Fortune 500 company. You know, I've worked with them all. And, uh, and I feel like every team gets something a little bit different. I was doing a sale training for a team in New York City. Uh, we uh, went about a couple, a couple hours and then everybody needed a break. And so then while we were taking a break, a group of them went outside to smoke. And then the other group, they, they got on the floor and did push-ups and planks. And I said, okay, since I don't smoke, I guess I'll be doing the push-ups and planks. And so I got on the floor with them. Yeah. You know, and they just said, oh my gosh, look, Michael, our trainer is getting on the floor doing push-ups with us. That is so cool. I love that there's a group out there doing push-ups and planks versus smoking. I mean, talk about opposite ends of the spectrum. That's hilarious. Exactly. So, so who's the right size client for you? At what stage business or what size, what level employee? Who's the right perfect client for you? Gosh, that, that is a hard question to answer because I, I am the anti-niche person. I told you I'm a late bloomer and I'm also the anti-niche person, right? There's a saying that there are riches and niches and I believe it, but I've never experienced it. I would say that when it comes to sales teams, I work with people who are zero to five years of experience, that that is my sweet spot in working with salespeople because they're so open to ideas and to putting together a good formula like the mindset, habits, and process. And so that's my specialty there. Doesn't matter whether it's a small, medium, or large company. And then when it comes to the coaching side, the coaching or training, often I work with medium and large businesses. So I work with some divisions of Fortune 500 companies and I provide coaching and training for them. Uh, using assessments such like DISC and uh, GenOS emotional intelligence assessments or five behaviors of a cohesive team. And then I also work with uh, owners of small businesses. When they are typically in the few million dollar range on up to about uh, 10, 15 million, there's usually a lot that we can do together. 
in, in terms of the, the services that I offer. And so those, those are some of the areas that I specialize in. I love that because you probably can bring some learnings from the entrepreneur owner to some of the bigger companies who say, we want to be more nimble, we want to move quicker. And then some of the big companies that have great processes and, and those small companies need that. So I'm sure it's a, a nice balance for you as well, seeing what's out there and what's working. So we're at the point in the podcast, I'd love for you to share a positive story, whether it be your career, your company, your personal life. What can you share with our audience today, Michael? Well, it's good. It's going to be a little bit of a uh, facing up to your limiting beliefs story, Sue. So when I was in my first year in business, it was 2008. And it was a time kind of like what we're in now in the sense that it wasn't a pandemic, but there was a recession on, on, and a lot of people were economically challenged in 2008, right? We were seeing our economy go into recession. And for some reason, I chose to go out into business with no clients out of the gate in that year, right? Because I told you that after six years, I, my wife said, okay, either quit or stop talking about it. So that was the year I chose. And I undershot my goal by 50% that year. And the next year was only a little bit better. And so I was in this position where I was not happy. I was not achieving what I had expect to achieve with my business. And, uh, and there was some from frustration inside. So I was sitting at the dinner table with my wife one night I said to her, we were talking about the business and how it's going, because I was trying to keep her updated on how things were. And, and I said to her, I know you want me to quit and just go get a job again. And she said, I didn't say that. And I said, no, but I can feel it. I know you want me to. And she says, if you don't want to quit, don't quit. You should continue if you want to continue. And I said, well, I'm going to. And she said, well, good, then do it. And in looking back on that, I feel like that was a point where I had to push past my own feelings of inadequacy or uh, being incapable, but that we want to be able to earn for our family and provide for our family. But I had started something of a luxury business during a difficult time. And so I, I had to face that and push through that. And around that same time, I had a client named Sue and she owned a landscaping business. And I met with her at Starbucks because I didn't have an office yet. And she said to me, Michael, I believe that you're going to be successful. I can just see it. I can see it. I can feel it in you. You're going to be successful. And I needed to hear that. That was so encouraging to me. That kind of experience with pushing past my limiting beliefs, getting encouragement from clients, having the support of my wife, because it wasn't her that was telling me to quit. It was me, right? I was projecting that onto her. That's what I needed. And, and I pushed on through. And, and I think that's why I'm here 12 years later, because I was willing to face up to those limiting beliefs that I have within myself, which is what I sometimes ask my clients to do. Yeah, that's amazing. And I do think that we often, when we look at ourselves and we do sort of the work that you do, it's, it's true. There's some sort of internal fear that's holding us back. And I think this is just such a good reminder to surround yourself with people that believe in you, but you certainly have to believe in yourself. So I love that story. Michael, are there any final thoughts or comments for closing our podcast today? I think the one thing that I would say, Sue, is that during this time, connection is more difficult. We have to work harder at it. And I think that people need to be more deliberate about maintaining connection now because it used to happen naturally and spontaneously pre-pandemic. And now that it's not, we have to be more overt and more deliberate. So I would encourage people to write down the names of people that they've lost touch with, that they want to rekindle the relationship with, use video, use the phone, whether it's LinkedIn, however you want to maintain those connections, really push and make it more deliberate because we just need to at this time. 
Yeah, it's such good advice. I keep a separate notepad. And I think you said a good reminder earlier about setting time because otherwise the day gets away from you. Of course, you have your to-do list and you've got your clients and things you need to work on, but you set aside time to make those connections or to engage with people on whether it's on LinkedIn or in person, um, I should mean over video. Um, I think that's so important. So how do listeners connect with you? How do they find you? Well, they're probably thinking that they can connect with me on LinkedIn and that's true. So you can find me on LinkedIn and I would love to hear that you listen to this podcast and that's why you're connecting with me. So please do that. You can also find me on YouTube by just searching my name. I have a fairly popular channel on YouTube with business growth and sales related content, public speaking content as well. And then of course, my email address, michael at buildandbalance.com. Excellent. Michael, thank you so much for your time today. This was so great. Such good lessons as I hoped and expected. And I really appreciate uh, you sharing with our listeners. Sue, I've enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the conversation a lot. I love the questions and the interchange between us. So it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you so much. Michael, thank you so much for taking your time. Always such a pleasure to talk to you. And I truly learn something every time we speak. To hear more stories and lessons from happy marketers, be sure to subscribe to the Happy Marketer Connection podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To learn more about community building, our Vesta Solutions delivers community-powered marketing to elevate your digital presence, deliver predictive insights, and transform your consumers into lasting brand advocates. And I welcome you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Sue Freck or to find us at Vesta-Go.com. Thank you so much.